0: Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States until our country's representatives can figure out what the hell is going on. We have no choice. We have no choice. (laughs) So right. when he first announced that he said Muslim ban, he called me up, he said, put a commission together, show me the right way to do it legally. I put a commission together with Judge Mukasey, with Congressman McCall, Pete King, whole group of other very expert lawyers on this. And what we did was we focused on, instead of religion, danger. The right. air, areas yeah. of the world that create danger for us, which is a factual basis not of a religious basis. You, it's, there's no constitutional requirement to allow anyone to immigrate to the United States and there's already U.S. laws on the books giving Congress the authority to ban immigration from nations that are hostile towards America. So this is really nothing new. And Mr. Trump doesn't really care what ISIS thinks or ISIS wants. All he cares about is the American public. It, it's not uh, nothing new, as you say. Um, there, there really is something new to the idea of banning an entire. Religious group from entering the country, as a pause or temporarily, uh, as it may be, that is new. That is not who we are. That's not what we do. Never in United States history have we ever allowed insurgents to come across these borders, and it's worse now today. No one's Essie, talking about allowing the insurgents. You're talking the about administration, us not allowing is leading it. And regular Muslims. That's what you're talking about. No one's talking about insurgents. Who wants insurgents? Yeah, from to Arab come over? nations. It, you know what? So what? They're Muslim. But take Sergeant Bergdahl. Does anybody remember that name? So, so, this is the way we think. So we get a traitor named Bergdahl, a dirty, rotten traitor, who, by the way, when he deserted, six young, beautiful people were killed trying to find him, right? And you don't even hear about him anymore. Somebody said the other day, well, he had some psychological problems. Well, you know, know, in the old days, bing, bong, Plausibly live from the Podcast 99 Studios, located in beautiful downtown Manteca, California. This is the Dave Bowman Show. Now, here is your submarine-qualified, well-coffied, stuffy, rules-driven, history buff of a host, Dave Bowman. Happy Valentine's Day, everybody. Got my coffee, got my uh, stuff here ready to rock and roll. You can join me, 565-DAVE, 565-3283, or... Dave at the dave Bowman show.com e stand up. tell those who oppose Liberty don't tread on me it is Valentine's Day and it is Tuesday but I thought uh, there's a lot of stuff happening so I want to sit out in front of this thing and chit chat about a few things um, I mentioned to the guys on the resistance podcast the other night one of the things I love about studying the Constitution is there's always something new to learn and while it wasn't a new concept it's something that happened, on Monday uh, certainly intrigues me. I don't know if you knew this or not, but a, district, a federal district court judge in Virginia has also issued another stay against uh, President, Obama, or President Trump's excuse me, uh, immigration order. Now, you may not have known that. Uh, this seems, in, in the face of the Ninth Circuit Court, this seems like a uh, piling on almost, but in the issuing of this order on Monday... There is some intriguing differences, are some intriguing differences to be grammatically correct, that necessitate us talking about these things again. Now, let me say up front once more, I am not debating here today the rightness or the wrongness, the morality or immorality of the order. We all have our feelings about those things and we all have our emotion driven uh, decisions as to how we feel about that, uh, whether you're on the side of these are activist judges or on the side that, you know, the president is a racist, irrelevant to me as far as the argument goes. Now again, from a personal standpoint, I have no real issue with the idea of limiting immigration. I personally don't think it's a wise idea. I think every time we've done it in our history, we've ended up with, at the very least, egg on our face, and at the very worst, a world war in process. But can it be limited? Of course it can be, and in fact, probably should be. There's a procedure. This is what I said the other day. There's a a procedure, a rule system to go through. If we're following the rules, fine. When we get outside of the rules, then, like most people, I'm going to have a problem with it. And I believe everybody should. Unfortunately, not everybody agrees with me, and there are many people who don't feel like the rules are necessary or fair or whatever. So we can, we can have that debate another time. Today we're looking at the legalities of this from a constitutional standpoint because that's really the fundamental core of the argument. Now, if you recall, the Ninth Circuit Court's stay uh, was based um, – well, it was based in the due process argument and it was a little fuzzy. And the, the Ninth Circuit Court really didn't decide anything except that the state of Washington – had standing, and was likely to succeed on the merits of the case. That's all they really decided, and then let it go forward. In Virginia, on Monday, a district court judge by the name of, and I'm going to screw up her name, Leone Brinkema, Leona Brinkema, has issued her preliminary injunction, and she has based this almost exclusively on its violation of the First Amendment, and the fact that it is discriminatory against Muslims. It is in fact, in her opinion, a Muslim ban. Now I know, I just heard the conservative heads exploding. It's not a Muslim ban, Dave, it's not a Muslim ban, Dave, it's not a Muslim ban, Dave, it's not a Muslim ban, Dave. Don't, don't send me the emails, because I already heard, I've already heard the arguments. Again, I'm not debating that here. What we're looking at is some functional elements here that might cause reasonable people to see things in that light? And how do you counter those arguments, or can you counter those arguments? Those are the questions that are involved. Now, the Trump administration has argued repeatedly that the executive order is not reviewable. We talked about this last week on Constitution Thursday. The reason they say this is because there is a doctrine, an accepted status quo, as it were, that the president of the United States has what is known as plenary power over national defense and immigration issues. National security is is a more proper term and immigration issues. Now, what does that mean? Well, the words plenary power uh, should be fairly self-explanatory, but in the event that they're not, uh, it, it essentially, it derives from the Latin word plen, which means full. In other words, the idea here in the plenary doctrine is that the president has full power and it is not reviewable. Now, if you think about those words for just a moment, you, you, on the surface of it, you might say to yourself, well, the president has those powers, but then wait a minute, we have this constitution thing that divides powers up. Are there any examples in our constitution of someone being given uh, plenary powers over one particular issue? Well, sure there are. Uh, Congress has the power, the plenary power to regulate interstate commerce. Com- Congress has the power to declare war, and no one else does. But then you start getting into how we do things. Well, the states regularly pass laws. California here's a great example of passing laws that seem to fly in the face of Congress's authority over interstate commerce. Hell, California's out signing uh, international agreements on uh, global warming, right? Doesn't that seem to fly in the face of Congress's authority to do that? Mm-hmm. We had the issue of the border a couple of years ago in Arizona, where where the federal government insisted that it had plenary powers. The the president did. Um, As far as the war thing goes, Congress passed the War Powers Act in 1973. It got vetoed. They overrode the veto to essentially give up its power to declare war for all practical purposes. And since that time, what have we seen? We've seen presidents exercise essentially plenary power to send United States military forces into action with or without congressional approval. Think about that for just a moment. How many presidents – regardless of party, have sent US military into combat since 1973. This would be an example then of how we've applied the principle of plenary doctrine, uh, plenary power doctrine, even though technically Congress still has oversight over it because Congress has to fund it, Congress has to get a report, Congress has to get this, uh, but the president has some wide latitude. And So this is the argument that the Trump administration put forward. This is a national security issue. It is both that and an immigration issue. And under the doctrine of plenary power, the president has unlimited and unreviewable authority to do these things, Okay. I'm not sure how you feel about that. I'm not sure where you stand on the idea of giving the presidency unlimited authority to do anything without any review, without any input, without any discussion from the other branches. Now, the argument to that is, well, but Dave, Congress passed a law, 8 Code US, subparagraph 1182F, which gives the president the authority to do that. And you're right, it does. The law in and of itself, I believe to be constitutional. I don't think there's anything in that law that says, uh, what is it, the McCarran Act of 1952 that says anything that is objectionable from a constitutional standpoint. But then we get into the executive order. Now again, what is an executive order? Congress passes a very broad law. The executive then is charged with executing that law or that instruction, whatever you want to call it from Congress. And how we go about doing that is what the executive orders outline. This is why executive orders are not just uh, expected, but basically necessary when it comes to how we're going to do some things, when when Congress passes a law that's, you know, if the president finds, well, how does the president find or when did the president find or what did the president find? You know, it's what did the president find and when did he find it, to, to borrow a phrase from the day that I'm not even going to get into uh, on this day. Uh, it uh, – sorry, I'm just – I'm amusing myself. Isn't that kind of funny? I'm laughing Because I'm talking to me. So I'm not sure where you stand on how much plenary power you want to give to the presidency of the United States. But this is the understood doctrine. This is the belief that the presidency can say whatever it wants, do whatever it wants, and no one has any authority or ability to challenge it. But what if, what if, what if... The president's instructions in the executive order are found to have exceeded the constitutionality of what we, of what we have established. In other words, let's say for the sake of argument that President, Obama, or President Trump's executive order – that's twice I've done that in one show. Uh, President Trump's uh, executive order specifically banned um, gay and lesbian people from seven countries in Europe. Does anybody seriously think that that would fly? But the president found that a class of individuals represented a a threat, and he outlined that. Does anybody believe that that would fly? Of course not. What if he banned specifically um, pick a a religion, Sikhs, uh, Christians, Protestants of the Southern Baptist faith, because he found that they represented a threat – or some sort of uh, problem with national security? Do you, do you think that would stand? So the question then becomes, in this order, does it in fact discriminate solely against Muslims from seven specific countries? And I don't even think the seven specific countries are all that big of a deal. I really don't. I, I think it comes down to, is it targeting uh, people of the Islamic faith and Then you started getting into the the morality issues of it, you know, when the refugees and this, that and the other uh, along those lines. But primarily, does it target specifically Muslims? Now, again, if you're on the conservative side, you're going to say absolutely not. It does not. Dave, see it right here. It doesn't doesn't do that. And if you're on the liberal side – Sorry, the progressive side, you're going to say, of course it does, David. It, it makes sense. I mean, it, it allows Christians for exceptions for Christians, but no exceptions for Muslims. So therefore, it's de facto a discriminatory process. Keep in mind, we're also talking about something here that doesn't apply to U.S. citizens. It applies to immigration. So does the First Amendment even apply in, in this discussion? These are all things that have that have got to enter into all of this. These are all things that have to come into play. But in the case of the, the Virginia judge, uh, Judge Brinkma, there's an additional element here that has entered into her discussion and her realization and her claim and her injunction stating that this is in fact a de facto discriminatory against Muslims and it is a, a, a problem. And that is statements made by President Trump then-candidate Trump, and some of his advisors as well on the campaign trail, and whether or not those statements are both admissible and, in fact, functional as to how we interpret this executive order. Now, what if Trump had said on the campaign trail that he hated Muslims or, you know, fill in the blank there, whatever, whatever race, color, creed, sex you want in there. And his first, one of his first actions as president was to write an executive order that essentially said, these people are not allowed into the country. Do you, do you think that would have stood? If you're going to say things along those lines, can they be taken into account in a legal executive order? So if the president did say that or something similar to that, and then later, after he becomes president, issues an executive order that seems to have that effect, but maybe doesn't, can we look at his statements on the campaign trail and say, well, these, these speak to his mindset? Now, the general prevailing theory has been, why, why would you ever take a candidate serious about anything? I mean, candidates say they're going to balance budgets, they're going to uh, increase jobs. What else do they say? You know, we're going to fight crime. Uh, we're going to do. Uh, it's a political promise, right? Political promises aren't worth, aren't really aren't worth the paper they're printed on. They're, they're pointless. They don't come into effect. They, they very rarely actually come to pass, and so we tend to discount them because we know, you know, what's the old joke? How do you tell when a politician's lying? Well, their, their lips move. Okay, can you take those things seriously now? Before you jump on. No, you cannot take them seriously. Jump over to something else that's happening today, which seems unrelated, completely unrelated. But we go back to something that was said on the campaign trail and now has consequences because of the election of Donald Trump. We've talked at great length about Bo Bergdahl, Sergeant Bo Bergdahl. We have beat that proverbial horse to death. But as it stands today, Bo Bergdahl is in custody of the army and is awaiting court-martial on charges of desertion and uh, cowardice in the face of the enemy. President Obama, outgoing, chose not to pardon him. It was President Obama's deal that traded five Taliban leaders for uh, Sergeant Bergdahl. Uh, again, I, I have talked this to death. All you got to do is Google uh, or not Google on the the, uh, the Show.com, go to the search box and put in Bergdahl. You'll see everything I've ever said about it, everything I think about it, which is that President Obama got got played by the Pentagon who wanted Bergdahl back. Be that as it may, they have him back. Now here we are doing this. The President, Trump, on the campaign trail said that Bergdahl was disgusting implied that uh, certain things should happen to him and that he was uh, a traitor. How then do you give him a fair trial in a courts-martial given the president's statements that might be considered legally pejorative? Will those statements come into effect? And in fact, Bergdahl's lawyer team has asked for a dismissal Based on the president's statements about Mr. Bergdahl while on the campaign trail. Now think about that for just a, don't think about how, what he did makes you feel. Okay. I understand all that, but you have to get into a dispassionate mode. You have to, you have to throw that stuff out the window. You have to put that stuff aside and think logically about what's going on. Can Sergeant Bergdahl get, fair treatment by the United States government with a president who's saying the things that he's saying. If an executive order is issued saying Muslims from these countries or, or saying people from these countries, these seven countries, except for Christians and religious minorities from those countries, cannot enter. And the president has spent months on the campaign trail talking about banning Muslims from coming in How do you separate those two? How do you pull that apart and say, well, okay, he didn't mean it that way on the campaign trail or he doesn't mean it that way now. Does the statement have any legal impact here? Does it have any effect on this? Does it have any direct impact on the way that this is being done? Those are the questions that we're going to have to ask ourselves. The Ninth Circuit Court, in its injunction concluded that the statements that were made by President Trump, then candidate Trump and some of his advisors, uh, including Rudy Giuliani, were relevant but did not reach to the, to the level of whether or not uh, Washington state specifically was uh, strong enough to prove a likelihood of success on its merit. Instead, they just, they just said, well, due process, back to this. Judge Brinkma, Brinkman, however, has looked at this She has compared the statements of the Trump Trump campaign as well as the executive order itself and this argument of plenary power in regards to immigration and national security. And she's basically come down with this. Maximum power, plenary power, does not mean absolute power. Every presidential action must still comply with the limits set by Congress's delegation of power and the constraints of the Constitution, including the Bill of Rights. It is a bedrock principle of this nation's legal system that, quote, the Constitution ought to be the standard of construction for the laws, and that whenever there is evident opposition, the laws ought to give place to the Constitution, unquote. That quote, by the way, coming from Federalist 81, written by Alexander Hamilton. The question that she was looking at was, did the government ever propose or argue that Congress can delegate to the president the power to violate the Constitution and its amendments as part of the law. And this is a reasonable question, I think. Can Congress delegate plenary power to violate the Constitution to the presidency of the United States? Now, before you say, but Dave, it's not violating that. We don't know if it is or not. At this point, we haven't seen a decision. We haven't seen the the real argument here. And if the position of the, the president is, I have the ability to ban anyone, and that's what Congress intended when they passed the McCarran Act, can you not see that this is going to cause some constitutional consternation? Again, what if it was LGBT people from seven European countries? What if it was Roman Catholics from Italy? And don't kid yourself, folks. There was a time in this country when that was possible. What if it was Irish? What if it was Asian? What happens then? At periods in our history, we have done that. And it again has created a great deal of problems beyond whether or not it was constitutional or not. Again, Samuel Eliot Morrison, the great naval historian of World War II, argues that the 1924 Immigration Act contributed mightily to the deterioration of relationships between Japan and the United States, leading to the Second World War. Immigration policy and plenary power is one thing, wisdom is another. And sometimes the two, <laughs> the idea of giving plenary power to someone. With no check and balance for anything, doesn't strike me as particularly wise. And the question we have to ask ourselves is Did Congress intend for the president to have the power when it said, you know, any class, any individuals, any, any whatever in 8 U.S. Code 1172? Uh, is that what Congress really intended to have happen? Now, maybe Congress needs to go back and rewrite that law it's possible maybe the law itself gets struck down i i kind of kind of doubt that maybe there's some elements here of um, willingness to accept that the president did mean some things that he he said on the campaign trail but how much credence do we give those things these are questions we have to ask ourselves, and these are questions we've got to look at and say to ourselves, okay, how do we balance this two? Does this order, this executive order, as the judge has written here, essentially ban only Muslims from those seven countries? Many people have postulated that the executive order is just a, a red herring and that it will be rewritten and it's just to to gum up the works and those kinds of things. And It, it might be for all I know. But I think it's time to still really answer this question, don't you? Does the president really need and should he be granted plenary powers when it comes to issues of national security and immigration? Can the president, the government, stand out front and denigrate a defendant in a criminal case and then expect that defendant to get a quote-unquote fair trial? These are questions that are all related to the idea of plenary power and while we might be tempted to jump, particularly those of us on the right, might be tempted to jump on the – well, of course the president can do this. He's just carrying out the law. It's not a Muslim ban. Let's reverse things, okay? Let's take this in a completely opposite direction and assume that, um, you know, President Trump is no longer in office. A progressive Democrat is. How would we feel about plenary power being executed in those cases? Would we be accepting of it or would we be angry about it? This is why we've got to be dispassionate. This is why we have to remove those things. This is why party has to be set separately. You can be a party person all you want. But if the Constitution isn't first and foremost, then you're doing it wrong as far as I'm concerned. The Constitution must come first. And I think that Judge Brinkma has raised some interesting questions here. Can Congress delegate to the president the power to violate the Constitution and its amendments that the Supreme Court has made clear, even in the context of immigration law, congressional and executive power is subject to important constitutional limitations, one of which is you really can't be discriminatory. You can't, you can't do that. Now, whether you agree with the judge's ruling, whether you don't agree with it, Can we not agree that this is a question that should be answered clearly? Should not the final Supreme Authority, Supreme Court Authority, decide whether or not the president has plenary powers? And before you come down in favor of the fact that he should have plenary powers, consider the future. And this is something that the Supreme Court has to do in its rulings. Consider the future. What happens next time this happens? There are numerous Democrats who are on record right now as. Ruing the day that the nuclear option went into effect under Harry Reid. It has essentially eviscerated their ability to oppose any of President Trump's nominations. They can delay them a little bit, but they can't stop them. They're wondering whether it was worth it to get those three justices on the D.C. Court of Appeals and questioning now the future. Personally, I think it was a good thing, but in looking at it, I think ultimately it's going to help. But when we look at this idea of plenary powers that Judge Brinkman has brought up, I think we're gonna to have to ask ourselves, what about the next guy or gal? And would we be as happy about it then? And if the answer is no, then we shouldn't be happy about it now. If we weren't happy about President Obama's phone and pen, why would we be happy about Trump's phone and pen? This is not tit for tat. This is not he did it first nonsense. It's either the constitution or it's not. And we have to make that decision ourselves as to which we're going to support. Please take the time right now. Tell the people that matter in your life you love them very much. You'd miss them if they weren't there. So don't pass up those opportunities. You don't want to have that regret. I'm Dave Bowman. This is Constitution Thursday on a Tuesday, plausibly live on the Dave Bowman Show podcast. Please like us, download us, and share us. The Dave Bowman Show is a Slippery Fish Entertainment production for the Podcast 99 Network. Copyright 2017. All rights reserved. For more information or to contact the show, log on to thedavebowmanshow.com. Keep calm. And try SCE2 Auxiliary. Hey, I'm gonna go do something productive. I'm gonna go watch television.